all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 327 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Stony Asteroid episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there's a Stony Asteroid from the middle region of the asteroid belt, approximately 26 kilometers in diameter. And it is the Columbia Minor Planet Designation 327. Columbia. And with that wonderful little bit of middle region asteroid belt knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee, Tim. That would have been some great 420 asteroid knowledge if it was, in fact, the stoner asteroid. We can, let's meet it halfway. We'll say stonish. Stonish. I like that. <laughs> so, Matthew, it is getting into the summer months well it's not getting into it's leading up to the summer months of of the Houston I don't know if that may seem okay let me hang on let me do that again Blech. so Matthew it is getting so Matthew it is so Matthew you are heading towards <laughs> what I'm trying to I'm get I'm just waiting for you to get like higher and higher so Matthew so Matthew so Matthew it's getting warm already yes, is what I'm trying to get at for you it's April. We're we are mm-hmm. recording on Monday, April fifteenth, and you're already having to have fans at your disposal to keep you cool. How's that going for you? It's weird though. It, it's okay. Well, sure, we have to have the AC on a bit, but you, what what's happening is is I think we don't have spring here as much as we have summer and winter grappling each other to the bitter end. Because we get these little, like, tendril wisps of winter that happen. Uh, two nights ago, it was in the 40s again. And then we turned around and got all the way up to 70. And then it got back into the 40s again last night. And today was 82. And now it seems to be holding in the low 70s again. Uh, so we kind of drift between these weird highs and lows. Uh, it, it's, it's bipolar weather. It's very interesting. No pun intended. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think that is probably why, <laughs> one of the reasons why I don't get sick really that often, because living in Houston, and actually, I'm from Spring, Texas. You're technically in Spring, Texas. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who move into Spring, Texas, expecting there to be spring, and that is not the case. But uh, I kind of thought that was a little bit funnier in my head than how I, you know, how it came out. I'm really like batting zero for zero this time around. It's kind of an interesting funny, not quite a haha funny, but an interesting funny. It's a factual funny, but I I don't get sick that often, and I really do think the bipolar weather in Houston had something or has something to do with it because, uh, like you said, you go from like sweating your butt off. In 80, 85, 88 degree weather with like 85% humidity. And then all of a sudden it's freezing cold because you still have that humidity and it can get down to 43 degrees in wet, you know? And then you've also been having thunderstorms apparently also, which doesn't really help things much. Uh, but I feel, I feel like we might keep going off on our tangent. And I, I know we have a lot of movies to cover this week. We have the most epic of our epic copycat throwdowns ever that we should probably get to i think so yeah uh we're, we're covering four fantastic films uh there are no issues with any of them so it's going to be praise from operative word in the sentence is fan operative word fan see we're turning fantastic into two words fan and then tastic are you talking about like the fan fans. that blows air or the fan as in fan? Oh, no, I'm talking about the fans that make these movies happen. <laughs> that's, that, that's what I'm talking about. Who then about. immediately regret making said movie happen. At least one of these movies happen. Without further ado, let's do a copycat throwdown. It's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it. 
Stop it. it. No, no, seriously. Stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick your ass. ass. Throw down time. All right. So as Tim has rightly mentioned, we've got four movies. And as I had previously mentioned, there are Hellboy. So we're doing four of the five or six Hellboy movies. I know there's at least five for sure Hellboy movies available uh, in the world today. We're just not doing Golden Army. Right. So, okay. So there's only five. I couldn't remember if there was five or six because I know that there were plans originally for more animated movies. I don't think we got any more than the two. But Correct. All right. So, yeah. So we've got 2004's Hellboy. Uh, we are then shifting gears to the Hellboy animateds, which uh, include 2000... Uh, sixes, uh, Hellboy, Sword of Storms, and then 2007's Hellboy Blood and Iron. And then we're shifting gears again to 2019's Hellboy, which they just decided to redo the movie, uh, or redo the franchise from scratch. And so, as is the case, we begin at the beginning. In 2004. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. An ancient evil has returned, greater than any the world has ever known. Sixty years ago, they tried to destroy the world. They're back. Now, one secret government agency. Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. Has been called upon. Hellboy. To stand against them. There are things that go bump in the night. And we are the ones who bump back. Are you gonna be okay? How big can it be? Didn't I kill you already? We're heading towards civilians! Destroy them! They should be running. It's coming for us! Second date, no time. So we got a 2004 American superhero films directed by Guillermo del Toro. As now I'm finding in forums and stuff, a lot of the online people have done away with Guillermo or talking about del Toro and this and that. It's literally now just GDT. So look for that. Because people are lazy. It's like Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> RDJ. It's the RDJ, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's called Downey Jr. Why not? I mean, there's got to be a lot of different Del Guillermo. I almost called him Benicio del Toro. All right, so yes, that's right. So, uh, directed uh, by Guillermo del Toro, uh, stars Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, Carol Roden, Rupert Evans, and John Hurt. Um, And this one, of course, uh, takes place in. 1944-ish, basically, is kind of a launching pad to kind of explain the origin of Hellboy. Um, you got this weird Russian mystic guy, got this scientist who helps the Nazis kind of summon this demon who then uh, ends up being captured and, and works for the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense after growing over the years and kind of working undercover for the good guys. Um, and he is basically, uh, sent out on missions and stuff, um, and as, has to take down this big guy, um, who ultimately is found to be Rasputin and ends up being the big bad guy in this movie. Um, shenanigans ensue, as is the case here, and... The movie happens. Um, I uh, this movie. I mean, this movie is so far removed in the canon of our filmography of of how we look at movies for the show that it's almost close enough to did it age well. <laughs> Um, it's a few years away. It's a few years away from Did It Age Well, but still. Um, this is an interesting movie. 
mainly because I think that what makes the movie so good is that it was truly a creative spin on the material. It was not quite as dark and grotesque uh, in terms of violence, blood, gore, and theming to a certain extent um, as the comic books that it is based on. But you also have to remember that uh, Guillermo del Toro is coming off of um, Pan's Labyrinth, and he's got a lot of freedom here and he's in in this particular creative mindset he's got a lot of um imaginative things happening he's got a lot of really creative a lot more creative control than i think people were giving him credit for and so he knew that he could take a lot of tropes. I mean, if you think about it with the Nazis and stuff, and yes, I understand source material to a certain extent, but the way it's portrayed here, it's almost as if this is kind of a holdover from Indiana Jones. And you think about two of two of those three movies um, are Nazi-related, but doing the same kinds of things, searching the occult and coming up with... Um, with, with uh, uh, religious ideas to kind of supernatural things to kind of take over the world. Well, all of these things come into play, and I think this is what made the movie the happy medium. I think it made the studio happy in terms of it being a not super huge budgeted movie, but something that kind of could make a little bit of money, do some business. And then, of course, with its moderate success at the box office, not not raking in the big bucks, really, depending on how you want to look at it, may not have really cleared that much, but because of the stir that it had caused, it became a big stepping stone for Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it did extra business in, in terms of DVD, Blu-ray sales, stuff like that. Um, home video market was good for this as well. So there's a lot of things where it's good for the studio. It was good for Guillermo. It was good for fans of the franchise who were like, well, this isn't really what it's like, but um, it's not so far removed that we can't get into it. It was a good conglomeration. As far as the movie goes... Um, I don't want to say that it hasn't aged well because, well, A, technically it's not there yet for us to say that kind of stuff. But um, you can see a lot of the early aspects of Guillermo del Toro that everyone really loves. And it was kind of this like perfect thing. We hadn't caught, we hadn't gotten to Red Death, Red, Ma- Ma- Red Mask, Bloodbath, I don't know, uh, whatever that terrible... 1830s melodrama movie with the redness in the title. I don't remember. We see the seeds of that stuff showing up. But now, okay, now it's bothering me. I gotta look it up. Oh, <laughs> Crimson Stink? Yeah! That oh. was it. I was like, Red red Mask, Red, red Death, 1830s yeah. melodrama. Oh, the, the crimson, Victorian crimson, horror. Yeah, Crimson Pink. <laughs> crimson Peak. Yeah. Uh, yeah, big <laughs> see, I was jokingly saying it's crimson stink, and then you say, no, no, I, "Oh, yeah. crimson pink," and then we both saw thought, "Okay, yeah, crimson pink, peak, peak." Ugh. Yes, yeah. peak. You can see kind of the seeds of that happening here, and again, I really think this is creatively. I truly think this is peak. Guillermo del Toro in terms of just pure creative vision it's not that he's not a good director in other aspects that he never made another good movie again don't misunderstand I'm not trying to go down that path um but he had just enough studio reining him in to make it work um but you can also see the seeds of problems that would then come out in future movies uh, or future movies since this one only had the one sequel um, Hellboy to the Golden Army. And I think the, the sequel, the, the problem here is that instead of making the, the seeds of the big, the, the biggest 
problem that we have that has started here is that instead of making Hellboy the anti-hero, a respected anti-hero, they tried to make him a likable hero. Something that, to other films' credit, is fixed to a larger degree. Um, whether or not it's critically panned is neither here nor there yet. And I, and it shows here that, that, that ultimately, while the action is really pretty well paced, while you are able to separate yourselves from the concepts and ideas of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, there's still, there's still kind of the good version of that storytelling here in Hellboy. Um, it's still trying to make Hellboy a likable hero instead of making him a respected anti-hero. Think 2012's Dread. That is a respected anti-hero. He is not there. He's, if anything, you could consider him chaotic good, right? Probably even... Mm, I don't know. You almost even argue a case for lawful evil for dread. And so you don't like him so much as respect what he's doing. And that respect turns into awe almost. And you want him to succeed. Here, Hellboy, you just kind of start to like him. Because, I don't know, maybe Ron Perlman, too much Ron Perlman showing through. Um, and he's a likable guy. Uh, and it just, I don't know, it just translates. And I think that's kind of the genesis of the problems that would come to pass in Hellboy 2. Um, it, but this is a decent flick. Uh, and I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. But I, I, I do believe its age is starting to show. And whether or not it would truly have aged well in another five years, I guess, well, maybe we'll have that conversation then. I don't know. Tim, I feel like I'm starting to ramble on here if I haven't already. So what do you got? I remember seeing Hellboy in the movie theater when it first came out. And I loved it. There was, I love the storytelling. I love the visuals, the mix of comedy, of heart, of monster movie storytelling. I just loved seeing all of that stuff put together. The end product is nothing short of being absolutely special. It takes a strong cast and it takes a very talented director to create a movie that is so heavy in the fantastical with history backing it up, the Nazis and whatnot, and then you have the you know stories of the occult and Satanism to a degree. It takes a strong company to pull all of these different story elements together with these characters and it actually working. It blew my mind <laughs> seeing this movie in that movie theater. And that only goes to show how great of a movie the Golden Army turned out to be because this is what it had to compete with. You know, it had to follow up Hellboy 1 and it did so. And Hellboy 2 is considered one of the best comic book superhero movies ever made. And even one of Guillermo del Toro's best. So I have a lot of stock in these two Hellboy, Guillermo del Toro-directed Hellboy movies. But since we're only talking about Hellboy 1, I'll just stick with Hellboy 1. I remember also being the only one openly talking about this film and sharing my love for it 15 years ago. I was in high school at the time. I remember talking to fellow classmates in high school, teachers, anybody else who was into cinema, and they just thought, oh, Hellboy, uh, why do you like that? It's, it's this devil, big, orange, red-looking creature played by this guy who we have no idea who this guy is. Oh, I think my mom remembers him from playing the Beast in the live-action Beauty and the Beast TV show from the early 90s. I mean, I don't really care for this fantasy. Oh, there's Nazis in it. Oh, and, and people were turned off by this film somehow. Granted, I think its domestic intake was $70 million. 
I can't remember if that was the domestic intake or if that was the worldwide uh, the worldwide box office. But a lot of people didn't care for this film. And then over the years, once we started getting Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, which are of course very good flicks, but they're more down to earth. Not very fantastical superhero movies. And we started getting these other superhero movies, like the early Marvel films that were not Spider-Man. You know, these movies were flopping. At the time, in late 2004, it was kind of fresh, at least for me, to see a PG-13 superhero movie look like Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy did. I mean, there was nothing else like it at the time. And... In some way, you know, if I squint, I can kind of see where you were talking about, Matthew, where they might follow in the footsteps of Indiana Jones because of it pertaining to Nazi, its ties with Nazis and the occult. And But this is its own bag, baby. That's why I like Guillermo del Toro. Even if he produces a movie that I don't care too much about, Shape of Water, for example. Granted, I've only seen it the one time in the movie theater. I probably ought to go back and revisit it. I can still appreciate The Shape of Water. It's a beautiful film. I just didn't think it was the masterpiece that everybody was heralding it to be. Right before he did Hellboy, Guillermo del Toro made Blade Two in 2002, The Devil's Backbone in 2001, uh, Mimic in 97, Kronos in 93, So Hellboy was really his first mainstream film where he could make a monster movie with heart. Kronos was kind of a monster movie, but it didn't have a lot of heart in it. Mimic was definitely a monster movie, but it was more so in the vein of the 1950s, you know, mutated bug type of flicks. Blade 2 is your is your vampire flick. Again, not a whole lot of heart. You know, at least whenever I think of Blade 2, I don't think of it as a movie with a lot of heart, even though I think it's wonderfully made. But Hellboy does have heart. You care for a demon child <laughs> who grows up to be the savior of mankind. You care for Selma Blair's character. I can't remember her name because she is isolated herself because she, you know, she can engulf herself and anybody around her in flames. There's Abe Sapien, who's also an outcast. I mean, maybe in some way I identified with this film because I always considered myself a little bit of a of an outcast. I didn't have a lot of friends. I got made fun of for a lot of bullcrap and you know, my household wasn't really the most supportive at the time in regards to all the awkwardness I was dealing with throughout my junior high and high school years. So that lends to that stake that I have in this film and these characters. I can bond with them. It's hard for me to really be nitpicky and find bad with this film. But the movie is not a perfect film. I do give it a 4.5 out of 5. Again, guys, I like the characters. I even like Jeffrey Tambor's character. He's the asshole FBI chief. But there are characters that have no business being in this flick. And one of those characters is Myers. And I am trying to remember, figure out who... Rupert Evans. Rupert Evans. Thank you. His character was just thrown in the film. Why? Because I have a feeling that either the studio or Del Toro or somebody really wanted that outside perspective. So there was maybe someone the audience can connect with. But because the audience can already connect with Hellboy and all the other creatures, I guess, the good creatures, it renders the Myers character useless. And I think the utilization of him in the film is really the main reason why I give this film a 4.5. You know, a lot of the stuff that pertains to him slows down the film. Um, There are some story elements and other slight pacing issues that I have some issue with, but it's not really worth me going into it right now. Because overall, it's an enjoyable film. And believe it or not, there is a director's cut of the film. I remember when uh, it first came out, I bought it, so probably in 2005, I watched it with my dad, and my dad went and saw the the original film in the theater with me. And after watching the director's cut, he liked that one better because it goes more into the backstory of the Nazis and the Russian dude who's actually featured in the new Hellboy uh, film. 
it goes more into why they're bad and why they're wanting to do what they are trying to do. 4.5 out of 5. I love John Hurt as Professor Bloom. Ian McShane plays the new Professor Bloom, and it's difficult for me to like Ian McShane as Bloom after seeing and hearing John Hurt's rendition of that same character. But when it comes down to it, this is more of a Guillermo del Toro movie than it is a Mike Magnola Mignola movie, the guy who created the Hellboy comic, Mike Mignola. It's very much a Guillermo del Toro movie, and it's definitely, not once does it feel like a studio movie either. The movie did not make a lot of money, therefore the rights went to... I'm trying to remember if it was like Lionsgate or Paramount or it could have even been Universal. I'm not going to guess anymore because I can't remember. Guillermo del Toro at this time, especially coming off Mimic, where the studio practically ruined that film for him, coming off that film, he realized that he will only take a studio movie depending on the amount of control that he has over the direction of that studio film. Luckily for us... Del Toro made two Hellboy movies based on his own specifications. Honestly, personally, I don't think you can go wrong with his original Hellboy. 4.5 out of 5. There we have it. And just as a clarification, I realized Pan's Labyrinth came out in 2006 and Hellboy came out before that. Um, just meant to say that it's the creative juices that went into Pan Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth that you can see here. So, um, I realize I said that backwards before. Um, all right. Well, then, very cool. So now we will shift into 2006's Hellboy Sword of Storms. Professor Sakai? I'm sure I know the sword you want to see right here. Two demons, sons of the storm. Once they wake, the time of man will be at its end. Beautiful. Boom. What have you done with our bodies? Damn heads. I don't have time for this. Do you feel our brothers are calling? You have been placed on a dangerous path. Protect the sword. Wow. I'll give you something to chew on. So yeah, Mike Mignola's comic book series here, they decided to do some animated stuff. And uh, funnily enough, they were able to get people like Ron Perlman and Selma Blair, who plays Liz Sherman, to help jog Mr. Tim's memory. And this was the first of two... Uh, animated films that they did. This movie basically wrapped, uh, is wrapped around Japanese folklore and Japanese haunted items and stuff like that. Uh, some, the, the, uh, daimyo, uh, I guess is what it's called. I don't know how best to explain this because the idea behind these films are that they kind of expand the universe of Hellboy, but don't really have anything to do with the movies, what with the live action movie. So it kind of fleshes things out. So you kind of have this bastardization of what the film started with something that's a little more in tone and in line with the comic books, uh, using the voice cast. Um, well, at least Ron Perlman, Selma Blair and Doug Jones, for that but tonally it's it's completely different and it's not necessarily in a bad way this thing was up for primetime emmys it was on it, even though it went straight to dvd it also ended up being on cartoon network back in the day there was an audience for it it was nominated for an emmy which is cool i just don't know tim jump in here i don't know how i feel about these animated movies <laughs> because on the one hand i mean on the one hand they're very interesting. Um, the art style, I actually, I really enjoyed the animation and the art style, but it's the, it's the storytelling in and of itself. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about it because it's technically a little bit closer to the comic books in, in style, I guess. Yes. Not necessarily storytelling. Right. 
both of these animated films, a lot of the characters and situations, especially in Sword of Storms, are chunks taken from various Hellboy comic book stories. They wanted to model the film after Alice in Wonderland. Not necessarily after Alice in Wonderland, but they wanted Hellboy to go on an Alice in Wonderland-esque adventure. That's why we see him coming across like a monster. Every new realm or every new place he ventures off to with the sword or in search of the sword. Now I'm getting it confused with King Arthur's sword, Excalibur, and the new... 2019 movie right but every time he is doing something with the sword or something he goes and he has to battle a whole new monster okay so while they're pulling and that's why i say tonally it's closer to the comic books but it's not i i would not say it's as violent um and as gory as the comics um so it's just i don't know it's just weird but i guess um the voice work is really well done I will definitely hand it to the voice work, uh, and, and I think that's partially because we have characters that you're familiar with being voiced by the actors you're familiar with um, in the primary things. I think that um, Perry Gilpin, who most people will probably, if you know the name off the top of your head, uh, she was Roz on Frasier. That's kind of the biggest thing that people uh, remember her from. Uh, I thought she did a good job as well. She plays Professor Kate Corrigan in this one. And, um, but I don't know. I just, I think that they either, since the, since the voice work was so well done, and I think that tonally it was a little bit better, it was just kind of this hybrid Hellboy that we're not quite used to seeing. But we're getting used to hearing because it's getting all the grittiness and stuff that people liked from the Hellboy of the film and giving it that kind of darker tonal aspect that I think people wanted more from the comics. And then you get this kind of weird amalgam of it through the animated. I think really they sh should have just gone and done something... Um, Maybe I think they just should have gone super dark with it. Um, but it's still interesting. Uh, it's still interesting. If, if, you know, you want to pin me down to a rating on this one, I'd give it a three and a half. I liked it well enough. I think it was, I, I, I like the introduction to the style. I like the introduction, uh, to the character work that they're doing here. And I like that they're pulling, as you said, Tim, they're pulling from the comics for at least storyboarding aspects of it and giving it a better tone. I think it hurts the film. I think it hurts the animated films to a certain extent by having the, the voice cast from the movies, because I think they, I think you could have given a better direction for these films to go because they, they don't work with the live action films. They kind of create their own sub universe, but then you're, feeling like you're tied to and anchored to the live action films by listening to Ron Perlman, Selma Blair and Doug Jones, whatnot. And then even more so in the next month. So, um, so I mean, yeah, I like what they're trying to do. I think it's kind of flawed. I think that by anchoring themselves with the voice cast, um, it limits their ability to truly explore the universe. Um, but with what they were using, I think they did well. So, uh, you know, is it going to win? No, but it's not bad. It's not bad. It's not bad. So, uh, Tim, save me here. I'm just blathering. With Sword of Storms, I did like the voice work in the film, and it didn't bother me too much because it's still their voices, but because it's animation, they have to tone down their voices. And I thought it was quite nice not having that over-the-top or overly enthusiastic cartoon voice that we hear even in some of the like the, the Warner Brothers Batman cartoons you know direct to video Batman cartoons I'm personally a sucker for these animated films especially these more adult PG-13 oriented animated films granted I don't think either of these Hellboy animated films are PG-13 but there's definitely more violence to them where you see blood you see people actually die to a certain degree and there are actually some stakes so when there are stakes the battles 
are that much more interesting to watch because you really don't know what the outcome is. Somebody can get their head chopped off. Somebody could get split right down the middle. Uh, the bad guy could win. You just never know with these PG-13 movie, animated films. And it just keeps things fresh and fun and, and interesting. Going into these animated movies of these established properties, I'm already willing really to go with the flow especially when they start moving into obscure storytelling elements. And especially with these two Hellboy animated films, I'm able to really separate the inconsistencies in its animation from the storytelling, depending on how well the storytelling is. And luckily with these two films, the storytelling is interesting enough to where the inconsistencies in the animation, and there's quite a lot of it, probably more so in Blood and Iron, actually definitely more so in Blood and Iron, the movies are still entertaining. But what Sword of Storms is really missing out on, because I give this one, again, if I have to give it a rating, I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5. What it's missing is something to separate it from your run-of-the-mill, normal, 30-minute long Batman cartoon that comes on Saturday mornings or whatever time cartoons now come on. You know, it, it, there's something, there needs to be various story elements that separate it from that type of cartoon. And I'm not talking about the violence. I'm not talking about language, cursing, or anything like that. But what I am talking about is seeing something that we might not have seen Batman do in 30 minutes or less. In Sword of Storms, like I mentioned before, he, Hellboy, does like this Alice through the looking glass time travel thingy, and it all revolves around this sword. And pretty much every 10 minutes or so, he has a whole other monster to fight. During this time, Selma Blair's character, she is off doing things with Abe Sapien, I believe, their chemistry is just fine. Their chemistry is fun. I mean, there's nothing not interesting about these two flicks, but it's definitely the weaker of these two animated films due to its lack of originality and flair in its storytelling. But again, if you're sitting down and want to watch a 75-minute animated cartoon featuring the same voice cast who played the same characters that you know and love, you know, regardless if it's a three-star movie or a five-star movie, you're going to enjoy it. So go and check it out. It's fine for younger kids. I can't remember there being anything that awful in the film. If they're going to watch this movie, more than likely they've already seen the Guillermo del Toro Hellboy movies. Moving on from Sword of Storms, we now jump into Hellboy, Blood and Iron. Ancient evil is awakened. This could be very bad. And the future of mankind will hang in the balance. We've got to do something. We can't. Only Hellboy. From Mike Mignola and Guillermo del Toro comes the newest chapter in the Hellboy animated series. Over here, ugly. We are gods of darkness. Out of my way. Destiny is overrated. Hellboy animated blood and iron. Second, uh, of course, in the Hellboy animated series. This one is written by Tad Stones and Mike Mignola and uh, is directed by Victor Cook. This is an interesting... This is an interesting one. Tim had mentioned the... Uh, Animation inconsistencies in this one. And while that is true, I actually like the story here. Um, some, it's basically at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's a vampire story, uh, which is kind of cliched, but it's got a fun twist on it because it's a true Hellboy twist. Not to mention, uh, we brought back John Hurt this time to voice over for Trevor, uh, Rutenholm. I think it's a really interesting way of making this work because it's while you have a underboss and then the big boss, right? Because it's kind of how this two-tiered system works for the for this Hellboy movie. Um you've also got 
a good support network. You really kind of get to see what makes Bruton Home tick. You get to see him kind of work uh, on his own to a certain extent. And uh, you also get to see the rest of the team kind of shine in their own aspects throughout this particular uh, film. So it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of heart. And as Tim says, you know, once you're, if you haven't gotten there by, through the first one, then you're definitely in the groove of the animated films at this point. Um, so I don't have the same complaints because now you're two movies into it. So you've kind of, you, you are kind of in that groove. Yes, it's the same voices that you know, but now they're kind of firmly established in the animated universe. So, um, you can just kind of let that ride for what it's worth. I think that, you know, you, you've got Hellboy. Of course, he's going to come in for the big finales and that kind of stuff. And he, and he still has a role to play, but I like that this one lets the other people have their own time. Not necessarily, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, to shine, but also to kind of highlight their own troubles and stuff like that, right? Um, you know, you get different aspects here, like Liz and Brutenholm are kind of off to the side for a while and stuff like that. So, you know, you've got Leash looking for kind of, um, uh, different things in there as well. So you, um, you, you have different people in the film doing different things and then it can all culminate however you need it to culminate for good guy, bad guy, whatever. Um, but Tim mentioned the, uh, animated inconsistencies. I just don't, I agree. I don't think that the animation on the whole is as strong as the first one. And I'm not really sure what happened there, but despite it not being as strong, I still think that what it lacked in the animation department, it made up for in the storytelling, at least for me. Uh, Tim, you know, Tim noted that in the Sword of Storms, uh, it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland feel. This is kind of your prototypical vampire movie. And I, for me, it kind of, it was slightly reminiscent of the Hammer horror films. And even though it's Hellboy, I mean, don't get me wrong, you're not going to sit there and kind of wait for Christopher Lee to pop up. Um, even though, you, you know, you, you do have Trevor Burton home. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's still its own thing, but it's kind of got homages, if you will, to good vampire storytelling. So this one also for me kind of lands at a three and a half. If I mean, since I guess, since, since I guess we've inadvertently started rating these ones <laughs> this time around. Uh, I'm not officially keeping track, but hey, uh, I, I like this one is the same. Uh, I think visually the, the Sword of Storms is stronger. I think tonally and storytelling wise, this one is stronger. So they both are good for different reasons. I like Blood and Iron significantly more than Sword of Storms. Well, I can't say significantly more since I give it just a 3.5 out of 5. So I like it 0.5 more than Sword of Storms. It's definitely entertaining for its 76-minute runtime. Also definitely darker and bloodier than Sword of Storms. And in fact, it's actually darker and bloodier kind of than most of the direct-to-video Warner animated flicks. Maybe not so much the Batman movies or the PG-13 animated flicks, the direct-to-video flicks that they've been releasing in the past few years. When this came out in 2006, I can't think of a Batman cartoon that featured this much blood. I mean, people are literally bathing in blood <laughs> in this cartoon. And in its own way, it's refreshing and even fun. Uh, maybe I'm more desensitized to all this stuff now. Actually, I know that for a fact. We're all very uh, much desensitized to this stuff now. And I, I feel comfortable in saying that back in 2006, this cartoon would have been shocking in some way. What's really holding this movie up to a 3.5 in my book is the storytelling I really like the story. I really like these characters. I like Professor Bloom, how it focuses a lot on his character. So you see some very interesting character growth. Uh, the movie begins with the audience perceiving Bloom in a certain way. And then with the structure being nonlinear, 
by the end of the film, you look at him in a totally different light. And I just thought that alone was pretty cool. Uh, however, the voice acting felt or sounded uninspired. I actually watched Blood and Iron before I watched Sword of Storms. Sword of Storms, Ron Perlman was on key, and he sounded like his good old spunky Hellboy self. But not so much in Blood and Iron. They all feel like they're going through the motions, including Ron Perlman. He's not really cracking jokes. He sounds a little bit more serious. I don't know if it was the voice acting aspect that has him a little bit off kilter or out of whack, but he didn't have that spunky, inspired gruff, I guess, to his voice. All right. Well, then finally, finally, the time has come to discuss what some critics are arguably referring to as the dumpster fire. <laughs> that is 2019's Hellboy. On an island off the coast of Scotland, something was summoned from the depths of hell. Something that would end mankind. And this uh, thing... You worried about did it show up? Oh yes. You did. We face every threat there is, and yet you take me in. Hello, son. You made me a goddamn weapon. Where's my fucking violin? Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Out there, there's a fifth-century sorceress who wants to bring down the curtain on London and the world. Great homework. Why do you fight for those who hate and fear you? You are meant for this. Out of the ashes, new Eden will emerge. Okay, I'd appreciate a prophecy with more relatable stakes. Haven't we got to be saving the world or something? Yeah, okay, come on. Let's get your game face on. Be my king. We belong together, you and I. We do, but it's not gonna work, you know, because I'm a Capricorn and you're fucking nuts! Alright, so this is the 2019 American Supernatural superhero film. Um, of course, still based on Dark Horse Comics, still based on Mike Mignola, yada, yada, yada. Uh, this one, of course, directed by Neil Marshall. And Neil Marshall has done some other films, perhaps, that you might have heard of. Things like, um, you know, Dog Soldiers, maybe The Descent, right? People have heard of uh, The Descent. He's directed, uh, you know, like uh, he directed an episode of Westworld and stuff like that. He's directed uh, a little bit of Game of Thrones. So, I mean, you know, he's... He's done some stuff, right? He's done some stuff. This one, of course, stars uh, David Harbour, uh, Mia Jovovich, Ian McShane, Sasha Lane, Daniel Day Kim, and Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, David Harbour is, of course, Hellboy in this one. Mia uh, Jovovich is uh, Nimue or Nimu. I can't. What did they call her? N Nimue? Nimue? Not, I don't know. Nimue? 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 Yeah, doesn't nimway. really matter. Nimway, the nimway, Blood nimway, Queen, is she nimway, the Blood Queen? A Nimue, a Nimue, a Nimue. has a hard time finding a movie to star in that is not rotten. In the Hellboy, the mighty Hellboy. All right, anyway, okay. <laughs> Jesus. But what? the question is, is it better than Resident Evil? <laughs> uh, which one? Which one? I know, right? That, that's a loaded question. So in this one, uh, instead of Hellboy coming from the age of the Nazis and all this kind of stuff, we're not worried about all that this time. Basically, we are straight up going with Arthurian legend and wizards and, and witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. Um, and honestly, it, it is a, an absolutely original, unique, fun way of looking at Hellboy. And I will give this movie, of all of them that we're covering for this show, I think this one has the most fun plot. I mean, because you, you literally can't go wrong 
when you are combining the demon spawn of hell, half demon spawn of hell, right? Um, present day human ideology, um, Arthurian legend, wizards, witches. I mean, come on. I, what, what kind of fun can you not spawn from this as, from, from, from this kind of a plot? And I think that is where they went with this movie. I, I really and truly believe that they um, wanted something as outrageous and as fantastical as they possibly could come up with. Because then they can truly separate themselves from everything that's come before it. Now, I also will say that this one is as bloody and gory as you can possibly imagine. They definitely went full hard R on this. And they, at least the, if I was going to do kind of like the Cliff's Notes version of Hellboy character-wise, they actually tried to make a respectable anti-hero, right? You're going to respect him but you don't necessarily want to like him. I think that people will then, people can confuse respect and like to a certain extent. Um, you know, because there's a scene in the movie where he's like, they're asking him, uh, one of the bad guys is like, you know, hey, if you, if you kill this, there will be no more left. You will personally be, you know, taking something out of the world that can never return. And, you can see him think about it. Like, damn, you kind of got a point there. And then he kills it anyway. I mean, he just kills it anyway, all right? And because it needed to go. And that is Hellboy in a nutshell. Um, he does what he thinks is right. And it doesn't matter whether or not you agree. This is a respectable anti-hero. And so I, I think they did their best to encapsulate that aspect. And to that end, I give... Um, Andrew Cosby credit as the screenplay writer. Uh, Mike Mignola apparently was on set quite a lot. Um, interview wise, he kind of seems to be wishy washy about how much he wants to be a part of this project because some interviews are kind of like, Oh, I was there all the time. Some interviews are kind of like, Well, they, you know, I was able to give some input. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where he wants to land on this, but I'm still going to give him credit for that. I'm going to give David Harbour credit for it because at least in terms of the characterization, they've really done it. And Neil Marshall also making sure that that vision stays intact in terms of how the character is going to be portrayed. I give high marks to all of them for that, for, for really trying to nail the true character of Hellboy and give you something that's worth watching but not because, but not for the same reasons that you watched before. Um, I also give high marks to the plot. Again, I mean, you can do so much. You can literally do anything you want when you're combining all these various aspects of occult and, and legend and mysticism and magic and stuff. You, you can do anything you want. Um, I give, I also give points to them embracing and fully going in for the hard R and just saying, fuck it, this, I'm sorry, and just saying, screw it, this is what we're going to do. But those things do not a movie make. <laughs> um, you have to have more than just the one character be good. You have to have more than just the, the, the skeleton, the scaffolding of a plot. You've got to fill that scaffolding in. That scaffolding is to be up against the scaffolding is the framework that you use to build the actual building, right? Um, the rest of the characters really have to shine. And as much as I like Ian McShane, I, Ian McShane is a fantastic actor for me. Um, I have, you know, followed him closely and tried to watch almost everything I can with him ever since Deadwood. So, I've been following this guy for a long time. I like Mia Jovovich. Uh, Daniel Day Kim is pretty cool. Um, I mean, not for nothing, but by God, I watched the TV show Wings, okay? And Thomas Hayden Church was the lovable mechanic, Lowell, the idiot mechanic. So these are actors and actresses that I've been watching for a long time that I like and enjoy 
various aspects of their work. But the characters they portray just aren't there. And the plot, even though it's got all these great elements, just seems to be a series of plot devices designed to move Hellboy from here to there because they feel like they did so good with the character or what's going into the character that they didn't have to worry about anything else. Action, set pieces, blood and gore, violence, fine. All that's great, but you need more than just that to carry the day. And I don't think it brings more than that. There's There are really cool, bright spots to this. And Tim noted it and on Twitter today. Uh, Mia Jovovich uh, has definitely, is definitely defending it. And I can see her point of, I believe this film will become a cult classic. But I don't see it spawning a franchise either. Um you know, if I were to, if I were to rate this, I would give it a 2.75 out of 5. I know we're trying to stray away from those quarter star ratings anymore, but, um, this is one of those where there's so much to like about the movie. And not for nothing, if it was on in the background, you know, I didn't have anything else going on, I'd probably sit down and watch some of it, if, if not finish the movie or what have you. Um, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, which means, I mean, there are things to like. It could, you can see it as a guilty pleasure movie. You can see it as a popcorn flick or whatever. Um, but there's just too many elements that are missing to really say it's a good movie either. So, you know, so you take it for what it is. You can leave it on and enjoy the aspects that are there to enjoy. But I, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't think it's the worst movie in the world. I don't think, I truly don't think it deserves, like, it's got like a 20% or something on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Do you remember what it's at, Tim? Uh, I thought it was like 14, but it, it could have gone up. 15! 15! Oh, it's at 15 now. <laughs> I don't necessarily believe it deserves the 15%, uh, that it's getting on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's got a 63% on the audience score and you know what i'm i i if you know i would lean more towards the audience score on this one um not because it's the best movie out there not even because it's really all that great of a movie but it's not the trash that people are making it out to be and i don't think it's fair i think i honestly think that because people liked uh gdt right you know and they're and they're so down with what they remember from 15 years ago that despite the legitimate flaws in this one i think they're being harder on it than necessary and that is where i'm going to stop and tim bring us home i personally don't think this is going to be a cult classic i don't think i think this movie is going to be a product of well, you know, the movie wasn't that bad, but the movie wasn't good. Obviously, people enjoy it. I mean, I don't like going off of Rotten Tomatoes. I think 15% rating for this film is a little too low. I could see audiences somewhat enjoying it as a popcorn film, but that's it. It is important to note that there were a lot of behind-the-scenes problems with this film. That is why it is such a mix-matched, not-quite-dumpster-fire brush-fire of a film. That's what it is. It's not a dumpster-fire. It's a brush-fire that could easily be put out. But there are a lot of issues behind the scenes. You know, there were so many creative clashes. It was mainly the producers were not getting along with the director, the director wanted to make a certain movie, he signed on to make a certain movie, and the producers kept changing the vision and changing the direction. And instead of the director going, okay, you know what? Fine, I'll make your movie. He went back and he would secretly change things again so it would more resemble his film. And then, of course, the producers would see that shit 
and then they would turn around and do something else with the flick. So it was a lot of constant going back and forth. The script wasn't even finished by the time the film really went into production. Ian McShane and David Harbour both were rewriting dialogue and even rewriting some of their scenes. That is why David Harbour come across as a child. When he does start building his character, you know, once he starts adding a little meat to the role, he comes across petty and more of an immature high schooler, really, than anything else. But, I mean, there are still glimpses of good character work. The tension between him and his father is pretty interesting. There are highlights of this film that are really good. It gives you a glimpse of what the film could have been. But when it comes down to the reasoning behind why this movie is such a mix-matched brush fire is because of the -the behind-the-scenes clash between the producers and the director. And also because the script wasn't even finished. You could tell also that because of Deadpool being the popular R-rated superhero movie, they were trying to add a lot of meta humor. The character that Allison, or Alice, played by Sasha Lane, who is not British, but she plays the most British young person in this film. She's actually from Houston, believe it or not. She makes a joke about killing Mia Jovovich's character so she doesn't show up in the sequel. It's not even delivered correctly. This should not be a meta-humor flick. I don't know if the comic book is anything like that, but this film, it just does not work at all. I did, however, like some of the fight scenes, including the Baba Yaga fight with Hellboy, as well as Hellboy versus the two giants. Wonderfully gory, but it's not, I thought, excessively gory. Yes, Hellboy delivers a death blow with his sword to, uh, or, or axe or whatever the hell it was. Oh yeah, no, it was the giant sword. He uses the giant sword to cut into the back of the giant's head. And of course, when you cut into the back of somebody's skull, blood is going to pour out. And there you have the giant's whole head covered in its own blood. Yes, is it graphic? Of course. Is it violent? Yes. But is it excessive? I didn't think it was excessive. In fact, I enjoyed that violence, especially when the demon creatures at the end of the movie are just starting to kill people, you know, once they're released from the depths of hell. What do you expect to happen? You know, it's an R-rated movie, and it features demons coming out of hell, and they hate human beings. Do you think they're gonna, like, get out of the way of every single person? No, they're gonna kill them all. What else were people expecting? That This is what's frustrating. The movie is not excessive. It's just not a good movie. But it's not a horrible movie. I'm giving it a 2 out of 5 heavily, heavily flawed film. Okay, well there you have it. So I'm, I'm feeling confident that 2004's Hellboy is our choice for the winner. <laughs> 100%. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right. Okay, so that, yeah, that, that is definitely where we're landing on this one. I, you know, I, I will encourage people though, as, as much as it's been derided and everything, I really think that 2019 2019's Hellboy is a movie you need to make your mind up for yourself. Um, and whether or not that means, you know, hit the early show during the day if you can, so you don't pay as much or wait till if you have a discount day, do that. Or even ultimately just, you know, grab it on Redbox or, you know, what, what, whatever you're going to do to do it as cheaply as possible, then fine. But I would at least say, give it a chance to see where you land on that spectrum. Because I think this kind of a movie really does <clears throat> provide a litmus test for your idea of just pure, you know, schlock, just pure popcorn stuff, or um, where you find yourself on action movies, you know, dark and gory kind of stuff. There's, so you can kind of answer a lot of questions about your movie watching preferences um, and style preferences with this movie. So at least there's that. I think there's always that. Um, and without further ado, I... Guess, oh, well, next week, next week we're doing yet another, yet another copycat throwdown, but we're toning it back, we're toning it back, we're going, uh, scaling it back a little bit. We got, uh, 2013's Gloria versus 2019, uh, 2019's Gloria Bell, which is, uh, directed by the same guy. 
So it's kind of like a Desperado uh, Mariachi, or I'm sorry, El Mariachi Desperado kind of situation where we get the same director making a bigger version of a previously released movie from another country even. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're doing there. We'll also have a nice uh, review of uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote because Tim was able to actually get out there and see it. And he lifelong dream acquired for Tim. Uh, and he's, I know he's looking forward to that. And without further ado, then I guess we are down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing. Say, 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 Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Twit12345. And, of course, come aboard the information super I went track on Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to patreon.com and check us out over there so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to david harbour i get to say this i am a dude who is meant to be on a couch in new york city thumbing through magazines take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>